0: This week, we asked Andrew's students a very important question. What does the gospel mean to you?
1: The gospel to me means good news, freedom, salvation. The gospel to me means his unfathomable love. The gospel for me is a gift. The gospel to me means joy. The gospel to me means love. The gospel to me is a solution for my everyday struggles. The gospel means to me that there is hope for my future. To me, the gospel is the thing that makes people change. To me, the gospel means evaluating my own life and giving up something of mine to replace it with something that God tells me to replace it with. Uh, To me, the gospel means a reassurance of my faith. Uh,
0: To me, the gospel makes me realize How unworthy I am of salvation, and um, just knowing that God cares so much about my life, is it just truly sets me free, and we truly don't deserve it. Uh,
1: The gospel gives me hope to see family members and uh, loved ones that I've lost. Gospel to me, the literal translation of the word gospel is good news, so the only thing I think about when I think of the phrase good news is Jesus Christ. The gospel means Peace. To me, I just think about the gift of the friendship of Jesus Christ, and it just overwhelms me with peace, knowing that even if all else fails, if nobody is here for me today or tomorrow...
0: Gospel mean to you. They put a, if they put a camera in your face and asked you, "How would you respond? What is the gospel to this generation? I hope that by the time this teaching is through, we'll know the answer. Let's pray. Oh God. Gospel means good news. We know that much. But what's so good about the good news? What would you say to us through Holy Scripture? What would you tuck deep within our minds, our spirits, our souls, so that when we we hurry out of this sanctuary into the world that awaits us, the good news goes with us. Make it clear, please. For Jesus' glory, in His name we pray. Amen. One of the most provocative paintings... For me, I can't talk for you, I'm not an art critic, so don't come up to me afterwards. One of the most provocative paintings for me from the day Jesus was crucified, all right, is the oil canvas work of a 19th century Italian artist named Antonio Cesare. The title of his painting, Ecce Homo. It means, Behold a Man. I'll put it on the screen for you in just a minute, but I am so moved by this painting. I really, this is a special painting to me. I put it, as I was writing this week, I put it as the uh, desktop for my laptop, just so I can see it. Watch that picture. Uh, Cisetti, 19th century, is known for his almost photographic effect. It looks like a photograph. Take a look. We'll put it on the screen right now. Ecce Homo, there it is. How many here have seen this picture before? Come on, you've seen it, haven't you? Yeah. Homo Latin, behold the man. There in Pilate's praetorium residence, the governor has pulled away from his throne of judgment. He's standing, leaning over the banister above the raucous din of the rabble who are screaming for the blood of this prisoner. Pilate points back at Jesus. You see Jesus stripped to the waist. Crown of thorns. If you could see with clarity, like my laptop screen, you would see his eyes are looking down. He's not looking at anybody. He's just looking down as if lost in thought. Pilate is framed by a centurion. You see the executioner. He has the scourge or the flagrum in his hand. I think that's probably Mrs. Pilate and one of her attendees and then some minor government officials. That's the judgment scene. Nowhere is that judgment scene more finely nuanced than the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, our theme book, and in three weeks it's all over. This is three Sabbaths counting today. I want to go back to that moment. I want to go to Pilate's Judgment Hall. And so without any further ado, what does the Gospel mean to me? Let's find out. John chapter 19. Open your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you, Wind Symphony. And by the way, beautifully done today. Didn't you love the collaboration with Wind Symphony and organ and, and worship team? I tell you, there's no other worship place where you can have this many musicians minister the way you did. Thank you, Alan Mitchell. Very much. Bless you. All right, so if you don't bring your, can't read your Bible, but you can see on the, look at the monitor up there and uh, on the pew as well. Okay, enough talking. John uh, 18. We'll pick it up, John 18. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. This is the most significant narrative in the history of the universe. So if you didn't bring a Bible, do yourself the favor of pulling the pew Bible out in front of you. I'll give you the page number. You've got to track this. Page 729, John 18. John 18, verse 28. Then, okay, Peter has just denied Jesus the last time you and I were together two Sabbaths ago. Then, after Peter's denial... They, this is the Judean aristocracy, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, Pilate's uh, uh, residence, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. I tell you what, the scrupulous duplicity of Jerusalem's elite is almost breathtaking. You can't believe it. Here they are illegally railroading an innocent man to his death, and they know it. And yet they hypocritically pretend obedience to divine law and moral purity when they are more guilty than the pagan governor to whom they've just delivered Jesus. They fear ritual contamination when they are plagued with moral rot. Verse 29. Pilate, catering to their insensibilities comes out to them, verse 29, and Pilate went out to them and he said, what accusations do you bring about this man? And they come with this nifty little, well, governor, we wouldn't be here if he wasn't worthy of your action. Pilate shoots back then, you've got courts, take them through your own system. Now, the crafty prelates have to acknowledge that they are a subjugated people and they remind him, listen, we cannot execute capital punishment, so we brought them to you. Bring the prisoner in. Sits inside the praetorium, Jesus bound, no longer gagged before him. Are you the king of the Jews? Obviously, that's the charge. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus looks into the governor's eyes. Are you asking that of yourself or have others said that of, of me? <laughs> what am I, a Jew? Your leaders, your nation brought you to me. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers were fight. Oh, you were a king then. And Jesus replies. This is what? Verse 37. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Verse 38. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? John is a master of irony in the fourth gospel, as we've already noted in this series. Already in this narrative, he has juxtaposed the Jewish hierarchy's scrupulous execution of the Passover meal, all the while they unwittingly collaborate to kill the genuine Passover lamb. And now a pagan governor asks the universal question, Yo, what's truth? When embodied, incarnated before him is the answer, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate won't wait. What's truth? Gone. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Hit the pause button right there. Because right now in this narrative, a series of seven threes, seven trios, seven triples is going to emerge unique only to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Each of these trios, an insightful point for you and me. And I think we ought to scribble all seven down. Only in John, these seven trios. Seven triples that yield one truth. So grab your study guide. Let's do it right now. Come on, you got a study guide, pull it out of your worship bulletin. Ushers, let's go. Let's get a study guide to everybody. You're going to want these seven trios that lead to one truth. So hold your hand up. Our friendly ushers are coming your way up in the balcony, Overflow, you're sitting there. Glad to have you, and those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you as well. Let me cut to the chase with you. Let me put it on the screen. We want you to have the same study guide, these seven trios. You're going to want these seven. So let's put it on the screen right now. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. And you're looking for the series, The Last Days. These are the last days of John. It's a two-part series Rather, it's a two-series to the fourth gospel: the last, the the the, uh, last word, and then the last days, three Sabbaths, and its history. So, you're looking for the series, the last days. Title of today's teaching: You see it on the screen there. Finis, Latin for end. What really happened that day? When it says study guide right beside that title, you got it. Let's go. All right, seven threes that form one truth, all unique to John, all unique to the fourth gospel. Trio number one, write it down, three no-faults. Put the quotation marks around it because those are Pilate's words. Three times, no-fault. Three no-faults before the cross. Pilate comes out to the crowd. And we just read it here in verse 38, I find no fault in him at all. Drop down to chapter 19, verse verse 4, I find no fault in him. Drop down to verse 6, I find no fault in him. Three times this pagan governor, early Friday morning, declares to the leaders... Of the Judean aristocracy and the rabble, he's not guilty. I'm telling you, he is not guilty. What's the, point, what's the point John is making? Two obvious points. Point number one, the Roman judicial system clearly found Jesus innocent. The Jewish courts did not, but the Roman courts did. The other obvious point, however, don't miss it. The Roman governor intentionally sacrifices an innocent man. He knows to be innocent for the sake of personal and political expediency. How many times do we sacrifice somebody in the office, somebody in the dorm, somebody in my circle of friends for the sake of me? Let him go. Who cares? Pilate is no different. Three times. You see, John has been really hard on the Jewish uh, elite, always dealing with the leaders in his gospel, hard on them. But here at the end, he wants to make sure that we understand it's not only the Jewish leadership, it's also the Roman leadership that collaborate together to execute the Messiah. He's very clear now. You've got to see this. Okay, trio number two. Three titles before the cross. Three titles. You remember the fourth gospel. feels like two years ago, but it's just a few months ago. When we opened the fourth gospel together, you remember John the Baptist thundered these words, jot down these three titles found in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel of John, rather. This is John 1, 29. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Title number one. Write that down. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. Title number two. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. Right here. The Bible's open before you. So then, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and scourged Him. We are talking about barbaric, bloody, A pre-execution execution. execution. In fact, some suggest that executioners, actually out of mercy for the prisoner, knowing how long and protracted death would arrive on the cross, hastened it, shredding the skin until the skin is flapped and hanging on your back. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Innocent man, by the way, he believes. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they they put on him a purple robe. Verse 3, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with the hand. The Greek means they kept slapping him back and forth. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again, and he said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. And here comes verse 5, Then Jesus came out, we just saw it, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Write it down. Title number two, Behold the man. But the pagan governor is not through with titles. Turn, drop down to verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha, I have knelt on that stone. It's under a building now, a crawl space. I have knelt on that stone. So moved, I tell you, I let the whole tour group leave. I was all alone, so moved with the realization it's the very stone from the time of Pilate, Gabbatha. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, here comes title number three, Behold your king. Three titles before the cross. By the way, this is the Antonio Cesare moment. Let's put that picture back up. This is is exactly the moment. Now, I'm going to read Desire of Ages for you. You have it in your study guide, but just look at the picture. You can read it later. Just look at that picture. There stood the Son of God wearing the robe of mockery and the crown of thorns, stripped to the waist. His back showed the long, cruel stripes from which the blood flowed freely. His face was stained with blood and bore the marks of exhaustion and pain, but never had it appeared more beautiful than now. I wish I had a DVD. I wish I could look into those eyes. Never, ever has this face appeared more beautiful than now. Wow. Every feature expressed gentleness and resignation and the tenderest pity for his cruel foes. In his manner, there was no cowardly weakness, but the strength and dignity of long suffering. And notice this last line even the priests and rulers were convicted, he was all that he claimed to be. He is God. He is.
1: But let's kill him anyway.
0: Behold the Lamb. Behold the man, behold the king, behold your savior. Question, is he your savior today? Trio number three, write it down. Three languages, three languages at the cross. Verse 17, let's read it. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, oh, where's Simon the Cyrene? The Libyan, where's the Libyan? He's not here. John leaves him completely out, and we'll notice why in just a moment. John has Jesus carrying his own cross, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a school, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. Isn't that amazing? Gabbatha, where Pilate sits, is the the judgment seat of the governor. Golgotha, where Jesus will hang, is the judgment seat of God. Two judgment seats, and they rhyme. Verse 18, when they came to Golgotha, they crucified him, Jesus, and two others with him. You say, Dwight, there's another three. You're right. But that's not unique to John. All four have the three. One on either side and Jesus in the center. Verse 19, and now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews who read this title, many of them read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And here it comes. It was written, that title, in Hebrew, that would be Aramaic and Greek, and Latin. I don't care where you're from in the Roman Empire, you're going to get the point. This is the king of the Jews. Now, the priests are furious. They come to Pilate, verse 21. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews. You should write, He said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate with cold steel in his eyes, for he was railroaded into his decision, and he knows it the weak leader that he was. Cold steel, what I have written, I have written. You see, the priests overplayed their hand. The charge against Jesus, they told Pilate, was he's the king of the Jews. Boom! And he puts it in writing, and they're stuck. Trio number four, write it down. Three Marys at the cross. Did you know that? Only John. Only John. Let's, let's uh, read uh, verse 25. Drop down to 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. What's his mother's name? Mary. And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There they are, three Marys. Only John notes it. And by the way, they're all women. Where are the men. We're all the big, big bragioso boys that were, I'll die for you. Where are all the men? One man is a boy, John boy, the only eyewitness of Calvary, the only account that is eyewitnessed. All the men have fled. I tell you what, in a day and age when some are wondering whether women ought to be granted a place close to Jesus in ministry, the story of Calvary seems to indicate that perhaps they ought to be there first. passion of a woman for Christ, unexcelled. Only John boy there to receive Jesus dying bestowal of his mother to John's care. Mother's day is just a few weeks away. And how is it with your mother? Do you care for her and love her in all your preoccupied busyness on this campus and in your career? Trio number five, jot it down, three words from the cross. The Christian world has long commemorated Christ's seven words from the cross. And I've gone through in my Gospels and I've numbered them. I know exactly the sequence, one, two, three. But John, unique, has three that nobody else has. Here are John's three. They happen to be numbers... They happen to be numbers... Three, five, and six of the seven. Let's go to to his first word in John. That would be verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John Boy, standing by, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, John Boy took her to his own home. Jesus had no siblings to commend her to. He gives her to John. And John counts it his highest honor for the rest of his life until she dies to be her her care provider. It's word number one, unique word. Unique word number two here comes in verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst... Verse 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. Matthew and Mark both quote uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not a breath of it from John. But he will allude to Psalm 22 from whence those words came in Matthew and Mark because in Psalm 22, the Messiah's tongue becomes so dry it sticks to the roof of his mouth. It's like dust in his mouth and John inserts John inserts I thirst Remember that from its very beginning the fourth gospel has attempted to show the utter humanity of Jesus our humanity so he, see, he sees the Samaritan woman he says man I'm di- woman I'm dying of thirst do you have can you give me some of this water John who began dying Jesus thirsty ends his gospel showing again his solidarity with the human race I'm still human and I'm thirsty He shows it twice, affirming that this Savior is one with us. And then there's a third word. This is the one we all know, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! Exclamation mark in most translations. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. There they are. Three words from the cross. Trio number six, jotted down. Three actions from the cross. This is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Listen to this. You remember a moment ago when we noted that Jesus carried his own cross? There's no Simon the Libyan around. John leaves him completely out. Jesus carries his own cross. What's up with that? John is making a point, and he wants us to get it by these three actions. Jot the point down first. Jesus was in control of his life and death to the very end. He's in control. Nobody else is. I am. All this ministry has been saying, my hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. But when his hour comes, he didn't tumble into it. He didn't trip into it. He chose his hour. Number one, John shows him carrying no cross. Nobody, I should rephrase that, nobody carries his cross but Jesus. Number two, look at this. Action number two. The three actions from the cross. Action number one, he bore his own cross. Here comes action number two. He chooses his last words of completion. He he decides when it's going to be it finished. He chooses it. And action number three, only in John. Notice the sequence we read just a moment ago in, in verse 30, how Jesus died. Now, when you and I die, this is the way we will die. If Jesus doesn't come, you and I are going to breathe our last. Here, this is the way we're going to die. We're going to... There goes our last breath. And after we breathed our last breath, our head will go down. Isn't that how it happens in the movies? I mean, I'm figuring that's the way it goes. I've been with people when they died. I know that's the way it goes. Not with Jesus. He doesn't go, last breath. Jesus goes like this. He bows his head, then breathes his last. Intentional action. Three actions to show that he he is in control. I love how Craig Keener puts it. Put it on the screen. You have to fill this in. The crucifixion in John is Jesus' triumph. The synoptics focus on his passion, his suffering. Oh, my Lord, what you went through. None of that in John. Jesus ends a conqueror. He ends in triumph. Ah, My hour has finally come. Final trio, number seven, jot it down. There are three woundings because of the cross, unique to John. Now, the first two are in all all the Gospels. Wounding number one, that's the flagrum. That's when those leather straps embedded with bone and metal and rock are wrapped around you by the executioner. Once he gets it around you, you're bare. He yanks it, and it just shreds your skin. He just shreds. He's already been wounded once. The other wounding, of course, is Calvary. But the third wounding, nobody else notes. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 31. He's just died. Therefore, verse 31, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You see, the barbaric form of crucifixion is slow asphyxiation. You will strangulate to death because in order to breathe, you have to raise yourself up, suck it, and then sink back down. It, it, it's, it, it is such searing pain that the Latin's coined the word excruciatus. From whence comes our word, and it means from out of the cross, excruciating. The next time you have an excruciating headache, you're saying, my pain is from out of the cross, excruciatus. So, when they want to hasten death... What do they do? They break the legs because you, know you, you have no strength now to raise yourself up. You will simply hang and strangulate because your legs are broken. It's too painful. That's why they did it. Verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But, verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, you don't die this fast. When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Only in John, that third wounding. Isn't this amazing? Think about it. Jesus rode to the cross that begins at the front of the gospel. It begins with water turning into wine. Isn't that right? Water turning into wine. His road to Calvary ends with wine turning into water. They just gave him some wine. And then it comes out water, reverses the bookends. Water to wine, wine to water. What's the big deal, John? Ah, wine and water, blood and water, blood and water, blood and water. It's embedded throughout the entire gospel. Blood and water, blood and water. You're saved by blood and water, blood and water. There they are. Ladies and gentlemen, seven unique trios woven into John's narrative of Calvary. But what is the one truth? Seven trios, one truth. What is it? Listen carefully. What is the gospel? They answered. What the gospel means to me. In the triumphant cry of Jesus, it is finished. There is a closure and completeness we, not, we need not only to intellectually grasp, but experientially embrace. And here's what I mean. In our particular community of faith, highly convictional community that it is, where right living and right behaving are rightly emphasized, there is a danger that we may live with a numinous sense, a latent uncertainty regarding the status of my salvation. I mean, am I really saved? I mean, how do I know? How do I know I'm fully saved? Oh yeah, I know. I know John three sixteen. I know that Jesus died for me, but do I? Can I have the assurance of His provision for my salvation? I'm talking about failing, fumbling, stumbling, sinning. Me, how can I know that that salvation is from me? I know he triumphed on the cross. I read the story just now. But what is God waiting for from me? How can I rise above this troubling sense that there that that, that in order to be really sure, really secure, there is something else I need to be doing. How can I know I'm saved? We all need, all of us, all of us need to take a closer look at this, at this death cry. It is finished. In fact, would you jot this down, please? The literal Greek for it is finished. Jot this down. The literal Greek is, it has been completed. Write that down. It has been completed. Keep your pen moving. That that, that Greek is in the perfect tense. Now, that means it's describing an action finished in the past. Jot that down. An action finished in the past whose, whose effects continue into the present. So, it's happened back there, but the effect... Is still going on today. It would be like you getting a FedEx... You get a FedEx registered letter on Monday. You tear it open and you find out it's from a law firm you have never heard of in your life. Turns out that your great uncle, whom you have never met but have heard of, turns out your great uncle has died. And some years before he died, and he died childless, but some years before he died, he filled out the will of his entire estate to you. And now that the law firm has found you, you are about to inherit his entire estate worth $3.3 billion. I say praise God for great-uncles like that, huh? <laughs> $3.3 <billion. laughs> See, long ago, that will was completed with you in mind. It was all signed, sealed, and delivered back there. But now they finally find you, and the effect of that closure back there now continues to reap its effect. That's what's happening in the Greek tense of it is finished. It's that same reality. Now, listen up. When Jesus died for the entire human race, something was culminated. Something was completed. In a very certain sense, his mission of salvation was finished finished it was finished at the cross but like your great uncle's will the effects keep rolling throughout history as one human being after another discovers that she that he is named in Christ's will and it's all there for the asking all you have to do is trust the benefactor believe his will or his word and receive the gift. It is finished. Means we can rest secure in Jesus' finished mission and work at the cross. In fact, would you write this down, please? What counts is not... That's my typo. What counts is not my unfinished work, but rather His finished work. Get that down. The secret to overcoming our apprehension over our salvation is to shift the focus from us to Him. Otherwise, we are going to be as guilty as the medieval church in making the same mistake they made for centuries. Uh, May I remind you about the medieval church? Their scholars all thought and taught that the earth was the center of the universe and all the stars and all the suns rotate around the earth. Then along comes a little scientist named Galileo. He says, i got to change this notion, guys. I I I looked up there, and guess what? The sun does not revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. We are not the center of attraction. The sun is. I fear that too many of us have have constructed a faulty salvation-slash-theological paradigm that places us... As the center of attention, as the center of attraction, salvation revolves around me so that what I do or do not do make all the difference. What I accomplish or do not accomplish, that's what makes all the difference. I've become the center of my own universe. Calvary, where you hear that shout, it is finished, declares that thinking is wrong simply bankrupt. Calvary is the closure. It is the completedness. It is the finishing of God's salvation. Oh, yes, you're right, you're right, you're right. In heaven's sanctuary, in the throne room right now, the saving work of Christ continues, but that hardly minimizes or negates the triumphant finished, once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. I repeat... The reason some of us feel apprehension over our salvation today is because, like the medieval church, we believe we are the center around which the Savior and salvation revolve. But how silly and how sad. I mean, look, if I am the center and I know how weak and frail, I know how sinning I am, How utterly helpless. If I am the center, no wonder I have no hope. No wonder there is no courage for me. But if Christ is the center of attraction, if He is the center of a completed work, then everything I have is pinned on Him. My hope, my assurance, my salvation, secure in Him. Jot this down, will you? Please. The truth is, this is critical. The truth is that the sun, and by the way, that's capital S O N, the sun does not revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. Jesus is the center of attraction for salvation. Not you. Surely not me. No wonder as soon as Jesus dies, John, immediately, did you notice this? Immediately, he starts talking about the Sabbath and blood and water. What's up with that, John? Ah, Why the Sabbath? Jot this down. In the creation story, you remember this, in the creation story, on Friday, God declares his finished work, and it was very good, and on the seventh day Sabbath, he rests. In the redemption story, keep writing, the same God on Friday declares his finished work, and it was very good, and on the seventh-day Sabbath, he rests in the tomb. Once salvation is finished, you rest. Nothing to add. I can't add anything to creation, can I? Oh, God, I want to I add a little something to creation. You can't add a thing. If I can't add anything to creation, how could I add anything to salvation? It's finished. 2,000 years ago, it was done before I was even born. Sabbath is embedded in John's Calvary story to assure us that it is finished means it really is finished. You can rest. You can rest in Him. But why the blood and the water? Good question. When that soldier took his lance and just up through the ribcage and burst the pericardial sac of Jesus' heart, releasing that trickle of of blood and water that John Boy himself witnessed. He saw it running down the chest of his dead master. John wants us to remember all through the fourth gospel, it's been blood and water, blood and water, water baptism, water to wine, blood and water, blood and water, all the way through. And when we get to the climactic moment of the universe's history, John declares it's blood and water, all Jesus, for our salvation. Not my blood and water. His blood and water. We have secure in Him. Jot this down, will you? The blood of His finished sacrifice. What's that all about? That covers my sins in the past. The water of His continuous purification. What's that all about? That cleanses my life in the present. Isn't this amazing? Listen, guys, look at this. John has made sure that we're, we're not only dealing in the past. Oh, come on. Everything's 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that's good. The blood covers everything. But... Those who are worried, but what about the present? When I mess up, mess up, mess up, we have water for cleansing now. So there's, Jesus covers us in the past, and he covers us in the present, and he will journey with us into his future, blood and water. Oh, you don't have to be apprehensive. You don't have to worry about the state of your salvation. Maybe, is there something more I should be doing, God? I, I don't feel very secure. Forget it. It is finished means it really is. Finished. just how finished these words from a century ago you've never seen this quote I'm going to put it on the screen for you you have it in your study guide Christ planted the cross between heaven and earth and when the father beheld the sacrifice of his son he bowed before it in recognition of its perfection it is enough he said the atonement is complete there it is it is enough it is complete it is finished. Three of them. It is enough. It is complete. It is finished. Oh, child of God, who are you? Where, who, where Where? should I be looking right now? Child of God, be at peace. Be at peace. No worry. No fear. It's all done. It is finished means it really is finished. He did it. It's yours. The will, it's yours. Everything, it's yours. It is finished means it really is finished. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed me white as snow. That old gospel hymn puts the blood and water together, and I want to sing just one stanza of it right now. Don't go. Don't move. Just stay seated. I want to We've got to see Pilate one more time. That picture is so moving. There you go. Hymn 184. You don't even have to look it up. The words will be right here. We're going to sing a stanza of it. Just sing it off the screen. You see Jesus there. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. Let's sing that together. Just a chord will be fine. sing about the blood and water. Ah, again i want to sing that chorus that's the truth of it is finished that's the truth of the blood of the blood and the water he paid it all i owe everything to him sin left this crimson awful stain in my life but he has washed it white as snow let's sing that sing that chorus again g dear friends, that's the gospel. Somebody puts a camera in your face and asks you, that's the gospel. Everybody who was on the screen had it right. But that's the gospel. He's paid it all. All to Him I owe. That's the gospel. So do I, what next step do I take? I mean, I've got to do something. I can't just hear about Calvary and not take another step. Would you pull your, your Connect card out right now? Our closing moment. I want to draw your attention to this card. There's a next step surely here that you can take. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me, He washed it white as snow." Look at that. Uh, you've already written on this side. You're going to turn this in in just a moment. Thank you for, for your, your name there, but, but go to the back side. It says, My next step today is... These next steps are designed to fit every teaching. Here, here are two that I'd suggest. Here are two. I want to spend some time every day this next week thanking God that it is finished really means it is finished. Why not? Every day when you have your worship, you can just say, hey, God, this, this week, this post-Easter week, I'm celebrating that it is finished really means it is finished. Every morning. You don't need a little reminder. You can just do it. Put a check mark there. Yeah, I, Dwight, I'll join you in that. And here's another one. I would like to share John 19's it is finished story with someone who needs this assurance Now, listen to me carefully. I'm going to be misunderstood probably, but I'm going to say it anyway. The older you get sometimes in this particular community of faith, the more apprehensive you can become. My dear grandmother, she rests in Jesus now, died at 99 years of age, but I remember visiting her once out in Loma Linda. I was pastoring here and went out there to see Grandma. You know, she'd be watching on TV. That's her boy, you know, and all that. But she said, Dwight, you know... Tell me again how it works. I mean, she's, she's been a world, married to a world church leader and all, but why? She's just because the older you get, I guess probably the nearer you get to death, you're just saying, do I really have all my bases covered? Is everything okay? Now, at your age, you're saying, hey, man, hey, of course I got it. It's great. Hallelujah. But there may be somebody in your circle in your neighborhood circle, in your family circle, in your, in your friendship circle, who struggles with knowing the good news of the it is finished. Th- that's what the second sentence is. Look at I'd like to share John 19's it is finished story with someone who needs it. God, if you lead me to somebody, to somebody this next week or five weeks from now, I'm not going to forget this. I know the good news is it is finished means it really is finished. And so help me to just be able to, to tell that story sat beside an agnostic when I was flying out to Germany just a few days ago for Easter weekend out there. I'm going to tell you next Sabbath, that conversation with an agnostic from Notre Dame University. I'll share that story with you. There will be somebody that will come into your life that you can share the gospel with. Just say, God, i make myself available, please. If there's somebody that needs it, I want to, I want to, I want to help. Some of you are saying, you know, Dwight, I really need to come to the Savior. I mean, he died for me. This thing really hit me. Those seven trios, they're just, it's inescapable. He did this in advance for me. He signed the will, and I'm in it. And I've never formally come to Jesus. And if that's you, my friend, just put a little check mark here. I'd like to begin, I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus. I'll send you an email. We'll we'll put material in your hand. There you go. We'll put material in your hand to help you. You can do it. Jesus is ready. You're in the will. It's all signed. It's finished. Baptism, we're having some beautiful baptisms next week, and then the following week, you say, "Do I'm really all prepared. I just need to do it. Put a check mark right there. I'm interested in baptism, and we can work you in either next Sabbath or the the last Sabbath of this school year. Why not? You're ready. You don't need to take a whole bunch of classes. You're ready. If you're not, we won't. Nobody's getting baptized unless they feel that This is the moment. But put a check mark there. There are other boxes you can put a check mark on. Always happy to be in touch with you. Every one of those boxes in that small box, you put a check mark there, you get an email. Within 48 hours, you'll get an email explaining the next step for you in one of those responses. This is the time when we receive our morning tithes and offerings. Freely you have received, Jesus said, now freely give. Oh, today. Whatever the offering is for, it doesn't matter to you. Just give. Give today. You have ties you want to return? Give today. As the, as the ushers come by, as they will in just a moment, I want to have a dedication prayer with you. This is where you just drop your little quiet card and just drop it in. We'll take it from there. We'll be in touch with you. Don't worry. Don't take it and hand it at the door. No, just, just drop it in that offering plate. I want to sing that chorus one more time when we're through. but the, uh, we, We've got simple gifts coming up. And it's beautiful from the Wind Symphony. And so I want to pray first, and then they'll play while we're, we're turning our, submitting our cards. Oh, God, this is it. This is, this is Calvary. What's the good news to us? The good news is it got finished 2,000 years ago. We place all our weight on the Word of Jesus, not the Word of anyone else. The Word of Jesus. And I pray for every heart here, Holy Father, please. Don't let anybody go home with an apprehension. I'm just not sure. What, what, what. Bring peace to that troubled heart. Bring calm to that agitated mind. Go back to Calvary with her, with Him. Point to the One who is the Savior of the world and let us all leave this place full of grace and truth in Christ. We return our tithes and offerings. How could we repay you for Calvary? We're in the will. We're in the will. We have it all. Please receive our humble
1: gifts with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.